a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. This was a late night chat after a busy service with Jack Stein and appropriately, he had a few ciders in hand. And I thought that Jack would be a little evasive. I asked him questions about his dad, maybe redirect the attention to say, I know my dad's famous, but I'm my own man. I'm talking about Rick Stein, obviously, but quite the opposite. He's very comfortable in his own skin, his own skills, his identity as a chef, and his role, which is crucial in running what is a proper family business. And I mean all hands on deck. He talks about terribly difficult times faced by the Stein Empire during COVID, which is still going on, and the never-ending lockdowns in the UK, which has been absolutely terrible. He talks about business on the brink, the promise of better times ahead, his deep connection to Australia, and his travels from a very young age and his love of food. Jack Stein, good to have you on the podcast. I'm really pleased you said yes, actually. It's, it's an honour. You know, welcome to Zoom. Headphones on. Yeah, running a business through through the COVID pandemic has meant everyone's got all the kit now. So I've got these, you know, the headphones, I've got a little microphone here and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it's actually taught us a lot about, um, you know, the, how, you know, how that kind of interpersonal, it's really important, like in business, you would know, but um, how you can do things virtually, but then there's also a yearning to actually, you know, see each other, which is something which has just become apparent over the last over the last year. Yeah, I mean, we're in a very personal, very personal business, aren't we? And people are, I think, struggling. They would certainly have over here about, you know, what does it mean? What do restaurants look like? You know, how do we continue being social? Because we certainly in Melbourne, uh, we got desperate, I think, during that second lockdown. We really realised how important restaurants and going out, buying a coffee, having a chat is. It's so, I suppose the two countries have, have got have had such different experiences, but universally, I think the hospitality sector has been saying the same things. Uh, it's like, you know, I, I, and actually from, from our perspective in, in, in Britain, some of the, we've actually been quite well looked after as a hospitality sector, which is, I'm not saying unusual, but normally we're, we feel like, you know, with the Brexit thing and everything, everyone was, we were crying out saying, this is a terrible idea because like half our staff come from Europe in, in our sector. Actually, in the during the COVID pandemic, we've been quite well looked after. But we then, when we did have the reopening in in our summertime, it was incredible. We didn't think anyone was going to come. We just didn't. You know, we were. I mean, we'll go into it, but we were. You know, for for restaurants, it's been open forty five years, and with Rick's name above the door and all the other things that we we were, we were on the way out big time. And um, so yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a, an emotional uh, year. And you're back into it now, aren't you? So you know. We were obviously looking from afar, from the other side of the world, and and thinking, you know, why is Europe opened back up and Britain? You know, mum and dad are on the south coast, in you know, towards you know Chichester, etc. And the beaches were packed. You know, hailing Ireland from where I'm from, mum was going, "It's ridiculous." There's a six mile tailback to the beach. People go nuts, and we were like, "Why are they doing it?" And now, you know, Britain's found itself in a terrible position, and all my hospitality mates are just closed again. You know, so how does yeah. how does this feel? Central, central London, central big cities, they've uh, they've just had a nightmare. I mean, we're, we're lucky we're in, in Cornwall. Like, you know, it's sort of a bit, you know, it's like being out in the Margaret River or something. You know, it's so remote compared to the, to the rest of the country. Um, and we went through our summer period and we had an amazing summer, like people just staycationing. There's nowhere to go, you know, but we, we, we it was interesting. We a lot of people, young professionals who would normally go to Mel, uh, to sorry to the Mediterranean or further afield, and we, we, you know, it, might, it kept us alive that that summer. But by the same token, there was a bit of us going, "Is this going to all end in tears? Are we going to get a big spike down here?" Which we we luckily never did. Cornwall's had very low numbers, and then we went into this tier system, which didn't help anybody because, to be honest, I was always of the opinion, "Let's just lock down hard. Let's do what Aussies have done. Just go. Let's just everything. We're an island. We can do it. Let's just like the first lockdown was really tough. Cases went down." And then when we reopened, it was like, it was a bit of a, 
I felt a bit guilty, I'll be honest. Like we all did like making a lot of good money and, and we needed it. Like we're seasonal restaurant business, you know, we're, we're, we lose money from, you know, from the sort of autumn to the spring, you know, we're always in debt everywhere and we make our money in the summer. So we, we managed to make enough money this summer to keep the business going. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not mincing my words here. I mean, there was a period, March, April time, we're looking at a timeline for our restaurant company and that's bearing in mind Rick and, and all the, PR that he does and all his books and everything we were going under like fully going by see you later everything gone every 700 people finished and these are people I've grown up with like my family members my auntie's been with us she's been our sommelier for 30 years you know and, and I was I was it was heartbreaking it was really 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 tough so we had this reopening and we kind of it was a bit like you know when you just like you don't dare to dream that this is back to normal but you kind of think we need to make a bit of hay while the sun shines because it's not just it's not just us it's our all of our supply chain you know and people forget restaurants they're not just the it's not just the chef like everyone just thinks of us chefs and where they think you know oh, you guys are just like you know we're the sort of the mouthpiece for the industry but every single part of that food that food chain that goes below us from suppliers to cleaners to front of house everybody they rely on us so it was, I'll be honest, it was tough. And, and I had some ding-dongs with the press. You know, we had one of the, you know, one of the kind of right-wing media outlets from the, the newspapers went for us when we furloughed our staff saying we were letting everyone go and this sort of stuff. So I started to go on the offensive, which Rick was actually in Sydney at the time. Lucky man. He was, <laughs> he went over and he was, I think he went over in February and he was there until, um, until August. So, um, but he was doing, we were doing this remotely like this. And I got really angry, you know, I got really, really angry because I was like, this is not fair. Like this is people's livelihoods. It's no one's fault. The coronavirus, it's no one's fault. It's like if we'd mismanaged our business or if we had done something that was like, you know, we'd like not paid our taxes and then everyone was going, fine, have a go at us, have a go at us personally. But it's my dad. Like if people have a pop at my dad and, you know, as you well know, when, when, you know, when you stir the kind of box of trolls, that is the internet. Sometimes they come out, especially on the right wing sometimes. And they're just like, they're nasty. They say things about your dad. I'm like, oh, I'm not having that. Like I'm going to bat for him. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I just, you know, I got, and then I got to a, a point at which I just started to just say, you know, it's not worth it. Like let, let's concentrate, make some money, keep the business afloat and just hope that you know the vaccines come and all the rest of it so yeah it's it's been an emotional time as it is for everybody and, and you guys in melbourne had a real hard lockdown you know and, and i remember seeing stuff and, and friends of mine who've got restaurants there and, and 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 people i know who live in the city and then you just think how well you guys have done it how well you guys have managed it and how you know lucy my fiance she's from perth and her family are all just you know it's like nothing so i know they've just gone into a small lockdown but you know they're chasing one guy who's come out of a, a quarantine hotel and there's a list of he's been to Coles and he's been here there and everywhere and we put the track and trace in England. <laughs> it shows you how much people move around shows you how much people move around doesn't it, it? Does. he's only been out for a couple of days he's been everywhere my my, my father-in-law like Lucy's dad uh, who's uncle Joe Sicilian he's just like oh uncle Joe was in that Coles three days before the guy went there and I was like I think you're right you know so anyway I don't know it's 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 a difficult one you know because our sector, we like you say, we rely on people. We love people. We love making people happy. We are very lucky compared to central London. I mean, you were you were at the Connaught when you I think when you were younger, and mm. these big. Yeah. I mean, my friend who runs who's Jeremy Goring at the Goring Hotel again. These big international hotels, they are just they're tanking. They are tanking, and the small hipster restaurants in like in the Shoreditch, which we all love. You know, like you speak to the owners, and they say, you, "We never realised how many." How many people in our restaurant were from a business background, suits and and stuff like that, you know? And and because you just think, oh, you know, we're kind of shortage, kind of hipster, but actually, the the work from home stuff that's going to have a huge impact on London. Huge. It's like I like, and that's not because before people thought you work from home, you're lazy, you won't get stuff done. During the lockdown, people realised they can get stuff done. They're quite productive at home, especially in the finance and banking sectors and then you start thinking of these offices they've got do we need to be paying rent on massive offices in canary wharf and stuff and that's going to kill london i just feel and I'm, I'm ranting now but like i feel like then the nightclubs and stuff you know i've got a lot of friends who are in that industry as we all do you know and you know being chefs as you know we like going out for you know there's nightclubs out i'm sure in 
in Melbourne and, and I know in Sydney and in, in London that all the chefs go to late at night and they're just closed and they've got no chance at the moment. I mean, I heard somewhere, I think in Australia, you're allowed to stand up and dance or something. And that's like a, you know, that's a million <laughs> miles away from where we are at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay to rant. I mean, it's a, it's a almost impossible situation that no one ever imagined. And he, and certainly, you know, Dave, who's our producer here, said certainly when it kicked off the first time, he said, look, I think we've probably done the COVID thing enough with all the guests because, you know, obviously the restaurant industry, as you say, hardest hit. But, of course, we're still talking about it a year later, which feels strange, but there's no other option, you know, and the hospitality worldwide has been hit so hard. I suppose the, on the positive side, everybody's being able to share stories and escape strategies and pivot strategies and stuff like this. I know. I, I, it's sort of like become like a word, the word du jour and it's just like, but it's, you know, we've done this online stuff, uh, these kind of makeaways, you know, these boxes that you, we make down here in Padstow because we've got these production facilities that service our chip shops and stuff. And um, we thought we'd do 50 boxes a week and we're doing about 8,000 a week at the moment. It's in, and it's, and it's across the board <laughs> and all the big, all the big restaurants are doing it. And it's actually quite nice because, you know, it's out of the COVID. If we, if we take COVID and just say, look, it's been a shit fight and we're just going to, we'll get through it. The vaccines are coming. We're all going to fingers crossed. Things are going to get better. But actually, a couple of things that have come out of it, which is firstly, our industry is so close, so tight-knit. Like we've, even chefs that I've in the past not 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 got on with, but just been a bit like, you know, we've it, it felt like, you know, when somebody's, you know, you argue as a family, we're in a family business. So we argue as a family, it's like, but that's our family. If somebody has to go at us from outside, it's like everyone gets together. And it's like that in the hospitality industry. We've really clubbed together. And it's been amazing. When things we've done, everyone's done for charity, for the NHS, when you know, all the stuff that's happened over the last year. And I think our, our industry stood up and, and been counted. I really do. And I, I feel like when restaurants do reopen, I think people will repay that. And you know, I've heard stories of restaurants making 20, 30, 40 grand in, in just people giving the money, just saying, look, when you reopen, we'll come and we'll take, we'll spend 200 quid, but here's 200 quid now, you know, and things like that. And um, it's, it makes me feel really good, real positive for the future. And I think that's the key. Um, I think this year, you know, once we get this vaccination program sorted, once the numbers start coming down in, in the UK, we're going to have a brilliant year because people are just gagging to get out. And in, in England, as same as in Australia, it's like the pub. Everyone's just talking about the pub. It's like when the pub's open, we just want to, we want in there, you know? I know you guys are in a slightly different space because you've got different restrictions. But right at this moment, I think the Brits are just, they just want to go to the Winchester and just let it all blow over. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's lovely. I mean, look, on the positive side, and you would know because you've got lots of, friends and contacts in Australia, but as things have gone back to normal and obviously travel's still difficult, I mean, I've just booked a flight to Sydney and I'm like, well, can I, will I end up going and can I come back and who can, you know, it's just, it, it makes you think, but still doing it. But people have just flooded back, you know, the, you know, certainly down on the Mornington Peninsula, which is 50 Ks outside of Melbourne, um, during the summer, you could not get a table, you know, or a spot, you know, restaurant or a bar, you know, cause people were just like, let me in you know i need to get out so that's the positive because people spring back they do they do and we did this summer and albeit a bit prematurely because you know again you'd rather i'd rather have locked down longer and harder and been in an australian situation where you were able to track and trace the odd person that that had covid as opposed to trying to track and trace fifty thousand pounds of people a day i mean, I mean it's like at one point there was seventy five thousand cases a day i mean you just think when you you know, where'd you start? But yeah, where'd so, you go? Yeah, but I think you're right. And I think that the benefit the, of hindsight, though, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's benefit the, of hindsight. And and WA, where Lucy's from, I mean, they've the, the joke is Wexit, you know, which is <laughs> WA wants to separate itself off from the rest of the country, which they may well, they may well do. I mean, they've got plenty of resources. Why not? <laughs> I'll tell you what, the one of the worst, the worst things for me, obviously, Lucy's family's from, from Perth and she's not, she's missing them terribly, but. Actually, for me, being a, you know, having spent a lot of time in Australia and just it's it's also a psychological thing for us. Travel for me is a big thing, as it is for you. You know, it's it's knowing that, you know, when you're in Cornwall right now, it's February and it's, it's raining and that we can't do anything. And normally I'd have a ticket booked and I'd be on the way to Perth or on the way to Sydney or on the way to Bali or, or Sri Lanka or somewhere. 
at some point in the year. And it just means that you can just, you look out the window and go, God, it's really dreary. But, you know, this time in a couple of months, I'll be in, you know, in Fremantle or in the Margaret River or whatever. And that's the real struggle. And that's, I think, the big challenge, I think, for for the world going forward is how is international travel going to go? Because people, are we going to have to have vaccination passports? Are we going to have to do this, that and the other? I mean, my Lucy's brother was with us and has just gone back through the the process, the quarantine in Perth. And and um, and we've, we're supposed to be getting married in September. You know, we've got 30, 40 people coming over from Australia and we're like, it's, it's like, it's like, is this going to happen? I, I at the moment I can't. I, th- I think it's going to be Zoom. It's going to be a Zoom, the first Zoom wedding <laughs> exactly. in the Stein family. That's what it's going to be. And, um, and I think Dad's just said to me now. He's like, you know, again, because you know, Sass, you know, Sarah's from from Sydney, there, and it's just our country, our families are so connected with Australia, and it's like the distance seems so far. And I watch like you know Darren. I've just seen Darren's show that's coming out on Channel Seven, and your new show with Manu, who's a good friend of mine as well. Who, and you just watching, you just think, God, you know, it's we're like, if I can't get over for the ashes, I'm, I'm honestly, I don't know, I'll, I'll swim over because I've got, I've got, I'm definitely getting tickets. Uh, <laughs> if it, if I, if I can't get, if I can't get in, I'm, I'm coming over at some somewhere. It's strange. Maybe it's just a, because it's happened to us in Melbourne, but I think a lot of us have just gained this new appreciation of local. Like everybody's, you know, as chefs, we always talk about this local provenance and supporting, you know, the, your state and your country, et cetera. Um, it's really brought us really local and appreciating everything that's around you. And it's kind of, you know, in the, in its minutia, which has, I think, been a real positive. So you can keep your fingers crossed for that. I need to drag you away from this conversation, though. Let's let's talk a, a little bit about travel because I I did want to talk about your family, but when I think about you and travel, this has been going on, you know, because of your family, your restaurant business, but your dad, you've been traveling since you were tiny. And the kind of food experiences that you've had are entirely different to the ones that I had growing up. Can you tell us about some of those? Uh, well, you're from Hampshire, aren't you? I mean, you would have had... To, you- <laughs> We had some terrible food growing up, all I can tell you that. And, and I'm thinking, well, if I had a dad like, you know, Rick Stein and I'm off to India or the south of France, that's a slightly different childhood. We used to jump in the caravan and go to Cornwall every year. We go, no, oh, not Cornwall and Devon again. I like the it's ice cream, but enough. It's a beautiful part of the world. I mean, yeah, I think we, I guess you could call us, call us the sort of prototypical foodie family. You know, um, we had the, the benefit if you, if, although not if you're in a business sense, but of closing the restaurant for eight weeks in the winter. Cornwall was not a, a year-round destination. I remember I was listening to to Darren talk about Byron uh, on your show and um, saying the same thing. You know, his, some of his friends had, had tried to come up to Byron. Now it's this kind of 365 days of the year place. And Cornwall is like that now, but it didn't used to be. So we used to close the restaurant and, and travel. So we started off you know, traveling always to Sydney. It would just always be to sit. Dad would see his friend who lived at Newport Beach on the northern beaches. And on the way, we'd stop off. And our uh, my uncle was a travel agent. So he'd say, look, you're traveling with three kids. You know, I was five. My youngest brother was one. Oldest brother was six and a half. Just stop somewhere. So Bangkok was the first place we stopped. And we went there to Bangkok when it's 85, 86. And dad had been very influenced by french food a lot of kind of um northern french normandy breton that kind of stuff and um we get in, out in bangkok and it's just like nothing we've ever seen i mean it's like you know and dad's just gone and he could see him he lit up him and mum just lit up they were just all over it and um went to this place that was called the seafood restaurant and it's probably like the worst tourist trap place if you went there now knowing what you know you would just be like you know, Farang Central was just like, you know, oh, you know, some kind of tourist trap. With, but it was the same name as our restaurant in Cornwall. And from that point, I think my dad's viewpoint on food just completely shifted. It just went, you know what, the, the old world, if you want to call it that, the kind of French, Spanish, Italian kind of stuff I've done. I really want to explore this kind of Asia. And obviously the, the stuff that was coming through Australia, through, you know, the amazing immigrant cultures that that were in sydney and melbourne and places like that on the way back we were supposed to go to singapore for like two hours we stayed for three days and you know had the first singapore chili crab and stuff like that and straight away i think he just went hog wild i mean suddenly our our holidays were just amazing we went to india like four years in a row and just 
again, this was like the mid eighties, late eighties. And there was, there was a lot of travelers and hippies and that in India at the time, but there wasn't a lot of foodies going on street food markets and stuff, you know, like, like nowadays, which is brilliant. You go to any cool city like Calcutta and you go to the street markets and there's just, there's lots and lots of people, Western people just enjoying the amazing street food. And dad's opinion was just like, eat there, just eat there. And it's, it's now most people, yourself and most people who've traveled and know chefs and know food would say, you know, eat where the locals eat. Cause you know, you don't want to eat somewhere where it looks nice, but there's no one in there. You want to eat where there's a queue of people. Cause it's, you know, the food is quite tough and spicy and et cetera, et cetera. So, and we just spent so much, and it was for us as kids, we were, you know, we didn't get to see our parents. Our parents worked flat out in the restaurant. This was pure unadulterated time with our parents so like with anything first few weeks is amazing and then you get a bit bored of it and by the end of it you're sick and you want to go back to school but it was just an amazing experience and it's something that I would always say to my children who are you know they're still quite young um travel just broadens your mind it just it shows you that your position on the on the earth is so different like when you're five years old and you have a kid begging for money who's the same age as you in India it's like well this is weird i'm out of my comfort zone but you you understand it you kind of you kind of get get sort of to grips with it as best you can and it's just it was the best upbringing uh but the the pure fact is that restaurant industry is hard you know my kids i didn't see enough for them lots of my friends who are having kids you know anyone who's had kids who's, who owns or runs a restaurant would know it is hard because you do sacrifice that so i'm very lucky that during that period of my life we were able to spend a lot of time together even though it's just a couple of months but traveling and tasting and you know and I'm I'm like as a result of that I've got this amazing I love street food love I'll eat anything but also I have this kind of side of me that wants to just skulk off and go and sit by a pool somewhere so like I I mean the amount of times I've been in like Indonesia with friends we stay in like surf camps and it's like 20 bucks a week or whatever and then I'll just go on my moped into Kuta and just find like a sushi restaurant and just, you know, splash like four times my budget just in a day. Because, you know, I do, you know, I, I've, I've kind of been dragged around a lot of markets with dad. I've seen enough, sa- I've seen enough saffron, honestly, Gary, to, to I've, I've never, <laughs> I never see saffron again. And I've seen dad being ripped off for saffron brilliantly as well. He's, he's in India and he's gone, I'll buy some saffron. It's like, you know, sort of deal on the street. He's like, oh yeah, I'll get that. And the guy's got it. And he's, this is typical. If you read the Lonely Planet, they'd say, this is a scam, but dad's gone for it. Oh yeah, it's definitely saffron. Rick's gone, yeah, definitely saffron. Yeah, 100%. Right, I'll have, you know, 100 quid's worth. Take that back to the restaurant. It'll save you some money in the long run. It gets back and it's like, you know, bits of hay that's been like, died colored with henna yeah died with henna or something he's like i've been ripped off i'm like yeah there we go when i remember <laughs> first going to uh, the spice markets and just being amazed at how incredible everything was and then somebody saying oh by the way because i'd look at the coriander and go how come the seeds are green like it's so fresh i've never seen anything like it and they go now that's been dyed you know like and you you suddenly realize that it's some of food is some of the most ripped off and adulterated you know product on the planet which we never knew, right? Oh, so, 100%. No. I mean, we just you, think about, I most it, people think it's a camera getting ripped off and you go, no, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, I mean, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, I'm very fortunate. It's been an amazing upbringing. Mum and dad have taught me, you know, they've taught, they've taught me to understand simplicity in food, you know, um, and that, you know, the kind of, the food of the people is often the best food in a country. Um, and and that, and that extends to France. You know, the food of the people in France can, can be Michelin-style food. There's no doubt about it. But, I mean, people are very surprised when I say the first Michelin restaurant I ever went to with Dad was in 2009. So, and that was Arzac. And then we went straight to Barry afterwards, one of the best meals I've ever so had. So you went to two of the, I was going to say, you went to two of the best restaurants on the planet there. How come they were the first? <laughs> yeah, just be just because the focus was always uh, different, always local, always just he just didn't he just I know he he loves Michelin restaurants he loves Michelin because people always get a bit sniffy about Michelin or or hats in Australia and and he always said to me 
you need to be recognized. The people who work in those restaurants and do those hours and, and, and who have got that drive, they have to, it's like the Oscars or whatever. You have to, it's like why the top 50 went from, you know, from Joe Warwick's kind of pet project because he was a bit bored at the restaurant magazine to the biggest thing in the restaurant industry because these guys and girls, they work their asses off and they deserve recommended. And, and it may not be the food that I or Rick, me or Rick want to eat every day, but God, when it's done well, it's great. And some places just take you on journeys and, and, and this sort of, uh, you know, that you just, just think, oh my God, how do you, how do you come up with this stuff? But you wouldn't want to eat every day, but it has its place. Yeah. It's a, well, it's an appreciation of the very best that you can possibly have on the planet, whether it's a product, a, food, a thing, or whether it's just pure creativity. And that's something to be celebrated. Yeah. And I think that, and, and that's the point. And it's that, you know, I think Claire, because Claire Smythe from who was at Gordon now has got course, she just got three stars like, like last week. And, and, and Andrew Wong, who, I'm sure you know it from a one got two stars, and you just think, oh, these people deserve it. Like these, these are good guys. These are good. You know, Claire's an amazing cook, and she's a fantastic person. And Andrew's just a lovely bloke. And you just think, well, you know, like you, I'm clapping, I'm clapping it all the way. And you know, if you said to me, what do you think about three mission star restaurants? I'd say, uh, by and large, they're all right, but it's the hard work that goes into it, and Claire deserves every single plaudit. Yeah, the individuals and the vision. So do you think in, in what you're saying there, do you think you've been lucky enough to down, it's almost like downloading all the files out of your dad's brain and then starting from there. You know, the rest of us had to go to go to college, you know, uh, discover this as we've gone along. I reckon it's taken me, I'm 53 now, it's taken me almost that long to realise that I just like roast chicken or soft Vietnamese rice noodles with fish sauce. Do you know what I mean? I yeah, and I think I think everyone goes through the same process. I'm talked to, I mean, I'm you know talked to chefs like Tom Carriage, for instance, two star guy, or Sat Baines, a two star guy. They all will say that they love this. They love simple food because they've mm. they've but they've built themselves a reputation on what they do and it's perfection, it's Michelin. Um, but I think for me, I sort of learned things. Yeah, I guess vicariously because I didn't have a real desire to become a chef when I was a kid. It was just, it was just all around me, you know? And I think that's what, especially Australians, I, I, I think this generation of Australians that grew up on MasterChef, that grew up on really understanding how cool cooking can be, that you guys have, have, have brought that nation. They will have, their kids will be so turned on to food like I was, just innately almost innately they all and that's what i had and i was one of the few people in in britain at the time that had, had this upbringing but now it's especially in australia you see it the way that the australians are so into food they're so into like you know you go into an australian's kitchen and they've got like a thermomix you know and you're like jesus you know come on this ridiculous, is ridiculous like, isn't it <laughs> no we've like we got we got up our game up a bit here and i think that you're right i did learn it from from dad but I also went through a period where I felt I knew better than he did, as all young people do. And yeah, that's important. That's important. That's the that's the proverbial arm wrestle on the table when you're about <laughs> fifteen or sixteen. See if you could beat your dad, exactly. which I didn't, by the way. <laughs> no, exactly. But I think it's a really important. You know, mum and dad. I went off, and I was like, right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go and stage at the Fat Duck, and I'm going to go and, uh, you know, do a, a stage down at Michel Brass. I was at Tetsu's on stage as well, and, and that like Tets is a, a legend, like really close friend of mine. And Darren was head chef there at the time. But when I went in that kitchen, I suddenly realised that actually what I thought was like really complicated, like food and like all this stuff, was actually still quite simple and beautiful and I came back from there with my tail between my legs a little bit and I sort of sat down in a restaurant and I thought to myself I'm a dad have had it right the whole time they've they're, they're, their idea of like Simon Hopkinson like roast chicken you know the idea of of this idea of hospitality being like a full buzzy restaurant and good service and food that just is of that that restaurant and of that area I sort of felt relieved in a way because I didn't have to pretend to be a Heston Blumenthal or a Ferran Adria, who were my big heroes at that period of my, my career, because they were just in every press. And and like Heston and I, you know, we, we know, you know, know each other. I've, I've started there. I think he's he's honestly, I went there recently and had one of the best months I've ever had in my life. Um, and head chefs have started work the same day I did in our restaurant. And uh, 
for me, I just thought, you know what? <sighs> I like simple things. I like a piece of fish. I like, you know, with a lemon wedge and, you know, those meals you have in Europe when you just get like fresh fish off a boat and stuff. And that's, that's me. That's just, and I felt suddenly like I'm being honest with myself. And it may be because I was in a three, I was in Michel Brass on three star and I was on, on stage there. And I, I think it's probably, that I realized I was nowhere near good enough. <laughs> like it was like the level was so high. I mean, it was so high. It's just, you know. Did you feel the pressure of having to do something different to your dad, like make your own mark. And that was what you were going to do. I think, I think so. I think like everybody just go, you know, we had a few chefs that came through um, and they were sort of like when they left, they went off to work in other restaurants and they sort of a bit sniffy about the food. And like, you know, as they were leaving and then my chef to parties, and I was a commie and it's, you're very like, can't think of the word, but when you're a commie, you look up at your chef to parties and say, wow, you're like, you know, you've taught me everything. And as they left, they sort of said, oh, a bit of fish, a bit of butter, a bit of lemon juice. You guys, you know, so, you know, we're off to New York to go to blah, blah, blah. And it, it sort of made me feel a bit like maybe I should forge my own personality. Maybe I should, because you're always going to be connected to dad. It's like, there's no, and there's no harm in that. Like your parents are your parents. And they, my dad has opened up so many doors for me. I've been able to go and work in kitchens, stage in kitchens, go to kitchens, eat in kitchens that I never would have got the chance to. And and I'm like never, I can't thank him enough for, for that. Both of them, 45 years working in the industry. Like they're my, my heroes, legends. But by the same token, you do want to forge your own kind of identity. But Hold the thought there, but I'm wondering whether there was a moment where you're a bit embarrassed or angry at your dad, you know, when that chef to party said, you know, it's just a bit of fish and a bit of butter and a bit of lemon. I was defensive of him, I think. I, I think I still was like, you know what, like, the thing is, I'd been to university, I'd done a degree in psychology, so I was kind of, I, I kind of felt like, you know what, you just, it's just sour grapes, you're on the way out, come on, calm down, mate. You know, I've always been a bit sort of, I don't get, I'm very unemotional when I in a kitchen, I don't get angry at all, but again, it's the same thing that's happened with the press during the COVID thing. I, I'm quite defensive of my, my dad and mum, because they didn't have a blueprint. Like in the 70s, you have a blueprint to run a restaurant in Cornwall. You just got on with it and just made mistakes. And, you know, and that's in some respects now they're reaping the benefits of, of all that, that hard work. But it's not like now, where you, I mean, you could write, you could create a restaurant by numbers if you wanted to. You could, you could get a chef who's worked at so-and-so and you could put some money in from a hedge fund manager. You could create a restaurant, but it's, you know, they worked really hard. So I think that, you know, it's sort of, they were sort of having a go at my own parents and the fact that they were, I never saw them. So I, I guess I was defensive. And, and it's if difficult. It's if difficult, I'm brutally honest. You know, we can dig into that a little bit. Is It's difficult growing up in a hospitality family or restaurant family. Maybe people that are listening don't understand that. But you've mentioned it a couple of times that, and I've read it in an interview where, you know, you didn't see your parents, you know, like you, it's a distant relationship, you know, that, and almost I'm, I'm not surprised you went off and did something else. Yeah, and that's, yeah, again, like now I've got a lot of friends going through the same thing and they often will phone me and say, how did your parents do it? Like, because it's like, it's, it's, it's the inevitability of running a restaurant, especially if you run it with your partner, that you will eventually have to, well, not have to, but you will eventually have children. How do you deal with, how do you juggle it? So I've got lots of friends who like, what did your parents do with you? And I'm like, they just stuck me out the back, stirring veal stock. <laughs> And I mean, that's the reality. We we were in there like from early doors. I mean, I, you know, I know we've just Brexited, but I'm sure that there was, there was an EU directive which we were breaking. I mean, it was like, it was just everything to us. And the, the business had this, we knew that it was important as really young children. We knew it was important because it took mum and dad away all the time. And in the early days, it was a sort of like omnipotent kind of thing that just was there. And then, Mum and dad were very open with us that we're in debt all the time, all the time. And as every restaurant knows, you're just, you know, you're making cash. The bank's fine because you're generating cash flow, but you're not, you know, if they call in your debts, you're screwed because there's, you know, you've, you know, you're running on fumes, but you're also generating cash for the future. So I knew what debt was <laughs> from a very young age. And, and I knew that we were really, really big in debt. And it wasn't until dad's first show and it all changed during that tv changed our lives 100 and as you well know you know being a huge tv celebrity yourself it's 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 we went from not treading water to making good money and dad came back i remember it like it clear it was dad right about all the time we had this 
bottle of Montrachet, like white burgundy, it's expensive, and we and lobster. We never had those at home. They were just we sell them to the clients, but we knew we had that kind of stuff in the restaurant. But we never saw it. And our dad came back, and we had lobster and chips and Pellini Montrachet. And this was like like early nineties. He just got his commission for the BBC, and at the time, lobster and chips and white burgundy would have seemed to most a bit like when you hear these crazy stories of people drinking like DRC, you know, really expensive uh, burgundy with like Coke or, you know, like, do you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like, like lobster and chips. There's restaurants in London now that just do lobster and chips. It's fine, but it was... Just... It's eight o'clock in the morning here and I'm going lobsters, lobster and chips would be just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but that's, that's dad all over. It's just like, that's what he liked. He's like, that's... He doesn't, you know, I remember Michelin came in once and they said, this was after we just come back from India for the first time, we put this Indian uh, vindaloo, like a traditional Goan vindaloo. So it's like a Portuguese dish. It's quite mild. It's not, it is spicy, but it's not like kind of spicy, like what the British vindaloo is. And he said, look, you know, we're thinking of giving you a star, but we just really think you need to have more staff. And I don't think we can, like these dishes, these curry dishes, we're just not very happy with. And Dan was just like, you know what? Up yours. I, I I don't want a mission star. I want to cook like Indian, like my version of Indian curry. You know, and so you know that was that was the kind of way our our business worked and the family worked. And it was I, t- I took to you. I took you away from a train of thought there that you would and I shouldn't have done. But you were talking about that lobster and chips moment where your dad had got the commission for the BBC. Where were you going with that? Because that was obviously a pivotal moment. It just changed our lives. Like it changed, it, it went, we, our restaurant went from being half full at lunch, full on the weekends to just full all the time. And what was really interesting is dad's uh, original director, David Pritchard, who unfortunately recently passed away, but long time collaborate with him and before Keith Floyd, the way they'd shot that taster tape, you know, that kind of pilot, um, they'd set. They'd shot a pilot because David had sort of had enough of Floyd. He'd, Floyd was quite tough and quite hard work, and he had shot a few episodes with Dad in the late eighties, early nineties in Padstow with with Keith. And I think he saw in Dad somebody that he could work with. And they did a taster tape, and the feedback came back from the BBC. Sorry, we're not really interested. And they shot this piece. And I've only seen it once. I don't even know if the rushes still exist, but he was in Plymouth, just near us, in a city near us, and. Um, he was on the on the harbour and he just was the original pilot. It was very like, hello, I'm Rick Stein. I'm a chef. Blah, blah. And it was just him. And he just was on, he was just like, looked like a pirate. And he just stood by this, I think near the Mayflower steps where they went to America from. And he just did this riff and it was like completely unscripted. And David just said, didn't tell Rick, just that didn't tell dad, just sent that off to the BBC. And they were like, we love that. And natural. And I think that that connected with the BBC, which has meant that, Rick's career's gone. Dad's career's gone through the roof. I call him Rick because I used to work front of house and you can't call him dad when you're working front of house. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's very awkward. So I sometimes find it difficult to... Um, and from that point, it just became this amazing business. And dad said to me, you know, when I said to him, I want to become a chef uh, when I finish my university, he said to me, don't. It's really hard. It's not the right industry. But I don't think what dad realized is that in the late nineties, early two thousands, our industry became cool. It became popular. It became something that's not just about slogging it away and doing a hundred hours, which you're going to do anyway for nothing. It became something where you could actually do things like master chef and you can do things like Rick Stein's shows all around the world and like shows that I've done. And it became like a, a career to the point at which now We've, I mean, talked, I remember talking to Farah and Adria about this. And he said, the thing is, the problem is that chefs are the mouthpiece for people. People want to hear what you've got to say. You've got to know about sustainability. You've got to know about, you know, about <laughs> geopolitics. You've got to know about all this kind of stuff. And, and a lot of chefs find that quite tough. But Rick's amazing at it. He just he transcends it all. And that's kind of hope where I'm sort of hoping to pla- furrow my plow or plow my furrow, whatever the phrase is, behind his... Massive ox. <laughs> it's interesting talking to you because I didn't know, you know, because we, we've met a couple of times, but I didn't. we've never talked about that relationship with your dad and how you feel about it. So I didn't know whether or not you were going to be, yeah, you know, let's not talk about dad. But actually, I suppose it's such an integral part of that family business that it all just goes together. 
Yeah, he's a le- I mean, he's a legend. Like he's like you know he. I'm so fortunate. Like like we get on really well. Like we talk a lot. You know, we have our like you know we have our moments. Obviously, as as all families do. But you know what I've seen him do to our industry and to the British food scene. You know, his Food Heroes show, which was a show in the late '90s, early 2000s, which was a carrying call of saying, let's not lose our small tiny producers that make little cheeses and little like that like what you've guys got in australia it's amazing over the last like five or ten years it's just exploded your kind of local food in the same way as it has here and rick started that in this country like floyd started it back in the day but no one really realized because the supermarkets hoovered everything up and then rick just said look if we don't use them we're going to lose them and when, when i remember seeing that just being so inspired by it even as a chef and even as the son of the man who was saying it. And I just thought, you know what? I will be, to the day I die, really proud of my dad for that. Like, because that's a really important thing to have done. And I think since that point, I've just realized that he's just generally right on a lot of things. He's just a great guy. And like, that's, I'm lucky to say, I mean, he can be, you know, he's terrible at badminton. I beat him at badminton. See, these are the important <laughs> things. I was just about to say, I'm legitimately allowed to say he's a legend, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think, actually, when people ask me, you know, who are your heroes, in terms of um, narrating and carrying stories for food and bringing that to the audience, I think your dad is, like, on the top of the list. He's number yeah. one. You know, people might argue about that, but I'm allowed to say that. I'm very kind of you. Coming from, and still, he's still... Pushing hard. How old is he now? 70, 74. 74, 74 yeah. Yeah, so he's still pushing hard. I mean, very admirable. But the fact that he can't play badminton, this is the important stuff. I mean, we, we like that. What else is he shit? What else is he shit at? <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's, not, he's not a great cricket cricket watcher. We go we go to cricket quite often. The Ashes when they're over here. I've been to the SCG a few times with him. He always asks me where all the field positions are. And I'm always like, come on, I've been playing cricket my whole life. Yeah, how many years? How and many he doesn't years? even know where like third third slip is or something. But um, he doesn't have the patience for it. He's a rugby he's man. He's a he's a he's a rah rah rugby man. He's a union man. He's you know. If you play rugby, and I played rugby at school, the bane of my life at school was that we'd switch seasons into summer and have to play cr- cricket. I hated it. You know, I'd do anything. Over- Sorry to all the cricket fans, but if you, if I wasn't batting or bowling, as far as I was concerned, I remember lying in the field out in. The, we had a big sports field. Sorry to tell you this. And I, you know the humming, not hummingbirds, nightingales, you know, and they just hover and twitter. I remember just sitting in the outfield somewhere listening to the nightingales and looking into the distance. And we had a Welsh PE teacher as a rugby player. All I heard him was, Gabby! <laughs> and it just snapped me out of this daydream. And I went, I don't like cricket. <laughs> I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Your role now in, in the businesses, can you can you expand on that and tell us what, what that means? Yeah, obviously, COVID times, we've just been in crisis mode, but so I'm sort of just the exec chef, chef director, what you want to call it. At the moment, for me, it's a lot of um, trying to get as much Cornish produce in as we can because Rick's just done a big season a series for the BBC on Cornwall. And we've just got, you know, we had to let down a lot of suppliers when we closed. Uh, so at the moment, it's all about building those relationships back, finding out what's good and, and, and finding out what's, you know, how we can help our suppliers as best we can. So it's, we're very sort of, it's a very weird environment because there's no there's no service, you know. I mean, there is service. If, uh, we pack, my brother's packing our online boxes till about two in the morning tonight, but there's no actual service. So, yeah, it's a, it's just running the business. And in those businesses, to give people a sense of w- what you oversee, and we must talk about your mum too because I read a fantastic interview about uh, Jill and, and her role in the business and how she's been driving it and even the fact that Rick had said, you know, the driver looked that way. So there's a lot happening. What? How many businesses are, are under the umbrella? 
well, so there's so there's twelve restaurants, and then there's sort of sundry kind of other like add-on bits, and and we've got fifty hotel rooms in 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 Padstow as well, and you know we've got restaurants in like Sandbanks, West London, and and other places like that. So it's a huge operation, and um, yeah, you're right, Mum, like Dad and Mum, obviously not together anymore. Dad's like uh, remarried Sarah, who you met, lovely lady from Sydney, and they've got businesses down in Mollymook and in Port Stephens, and. You know that's fantastic, um, but they, the mum and dad, they still run the business. They have a, a great business relationship. But mum is just, you know, she's again been it forty five years. It's it's light. It's her life. It's her life's work. And I think when somebody says a restaurant's forty five years old, people who understand restaurants realize how long that really is. I mean, that is like geological time. When you think your favorite restaurants, most of them they don't last 10 years like even really good ones and you know places like i saw st john we went to st john's 20th the other day and i was just like st john's and I met one of my favorite restaurants in the world and i'm just like I, even when i went there i was still going oh, it's like that's half the time that we've been open it's just incredible so she's and my mom's an amazing woman she's just um she's been the, the rock for us as 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 kids and 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 obviously the business and she and it continues to push it forward so it's one of those things you just at the moment we're in a poor situation and all of us unanimously everyone just wants to get back and everyone who's even even people on furlough and it really pisses me off when people, you see this right-wing stuff about people would like rather be on furlough than be on work it's just not true and and really what got my mum really upset was when they called us unskilled workers and she was like she never went to university she came down to Cornwall when she was 18 years old she's worked her entire life She's got a, an OBE. Our business is you know, massively successful. And, and they called her that, that. She's like, I would have been an unskilled worker. And it's just like, come on. So she gets, she's very in, involved in kind of a lot of projects, a lot of charity, a lot of projects for, for that, that help females, uh, women in our industry, because, you know, we need more women in our industry. I, I've always looked at Australia as being quite good with like how many, like when I've worked, in Australian kitchens, there's been a lot of, of women in the kitchens, and in our country, it's just not the same. And we just we have a few, and we all hang our hats on them, like Angela and Claire Smythe, and those who are an amazing, who are amazing. But we don't have that depth of, of female talent. And Mum's really pushing that at the moment. That's a big thing for her for the next couple of years. Is to, you know, it's the same in every industry. You know, we had to do an audit the other day for equal pay. And mum laughed because there's no, I mean, everyone's paid equally, female, male in our company because it's 50% owned by mum and 50% owned by dad. And there's absolutely no way you'd ever have anything but. And it seemed like such a misnomer to mum. She couldn't believe. And then all these companies came back with these results saying how different this disparity was. And she just couldn't believe it. But she's a businesswoman and always has been. So yeah, she's great. I think it's very difficult in the industry. I've always had this, you know, I've always looked at, the women in my business is just, and lots of women I ask, often ask the question actually, get really offended that they're categorised. I'm talking about people in our business categorised as a female chef. They go, I'm just a chef. Yeah. And I've always looked at my team and I don't see them as any different. In fact, and I've said it before on the podcast, at one point in my businesses, all of the top positions were held by women. And it wasn't deliberate. It was just the fact that they were bloody incredible. Yeah. And I worshipped them just as I would anybody else. And so you, you're kind of surprised when other businesses don't think of their workforce in the same way. And I think that's a, that's the thing with our industry. It's 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 a, it's a hard work industry. Um, and people go, oh, that's like men work hard. It's nonsense. Women are the far better at problem solving. Far, so many things that, that, that women are, are brilliant at that and bring so much to our industry. And, and it's not just in the kind of conventional ways people just assume because of the ways gender roles split out. They are just brilliant. And like even, and you're seeing it now in, government like look at like, what's happening in New Zealand and Iceland with these amazing female prime ministers and you just think it's just we're just everyone's so behind the curve in terms of, of where we need to be and you're right it shouldn't be female chef it's just chef and you know dad's um my I get very confused dad's step or sass's daughter has just started working for us and it's just like, you know, it's just so nice to see her, see her in there. She's working in, in, in our restaurant in West London. And these things just make you so happy. And it, make, it gives you positivity. But our industry is so resilient. And our industry is so forward thinking. And that's why things like Brexit, I think, hit our industry really hard. Because it was just like, 
Why are we doing this? What it makes no sense. We're an industry that serves food to people who would rather the people serving food to them didn't have a job in this country. It's like, come on, like really? I mean, you know, it's just I. It, it got to the point at which I was just I was before the virus hit. I was in despair, and then the virus hit, and I was just like, here we go. I mean, <laughs> I, I just want to move to Australia. I've just got to, you know when I've just it's, it's deep. You've in got February. lockdown syndrome. That's what you've got. You between me, you, and your millions of viewers uh, and listeners, I'm I, we're actually coming out to Australia this winter for the winter for for your summer if we can get out. And um, me and Lucy are doing a tour to find somewhere to potentially settle down and open a restaurant because oh yeah. exciting but anyway if you've got any suggestions i'm, I'm, yeah, I'm all ears i'll open a maccas down in you know in the guild i don't care <laughs> it's just i don't i can't i'm not i'm not being dismissive of our country it's a beautiful place and cornwall especially and our business is fantastic and the people are great but i just feel like i don't know brexit's really upset me it really it really just really has it's just it's just yeah it's made me just feel like the country i lived in has gone backwards and that's a horrible feeling. Just from my perspective, it's much to do, I think, of to do with all the things you've described. You know, it's travelling early on and, you know, embracing this kind of globalism and this interest and celebration of everybody's culture through food. And then Brexit, I'm sure, feels like sh- closing the doors. I mean, who's, uh, you know, let's not get too political, but who knows what that's going to look like, you know? I'm sure it's very difficult for somebody like you. And don't forget, you know, you, you have got lockdown syndrome. I'm sure you, you know, you're sitting there <laughs> having described the rainy days and just gone, I feel sad. Don't feel that sad because we're excited to have you on. <laughs> the, the irony is I'm sat in my shepherd's hut, which is at the back of my, which is my granny flat for when Lucy's parents come over from, from Perth. And actually David Cameron has one of these and he called the referendum. So I sort of feel a bit like, you know, <laughs> don't know what. <laughs> You're an ex-Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And, and when you switch off your Zoom, you can just sit there quietly and contemplate. You might come up with a brilliant idea. Who knows? Can I ask you, I was really curious because I know when, um, and this is to do with your mum and dad and the family because you, you've got two other brothers, right? And I wanted to know that when your mum and dad separated or, or divorced, how that felt as children and knowing what, it, what you'd built up. I think we were, I mean, I was in my early 20s. I was at university. I was, I was, you know, it's, it's anyway, anyone's parents separating is always difficult. I never thought mine would up to that point, if I'm honest. But um, I had enough, you know, I was old enough to deal with it in a kind of a pragmatic way. And I think that it was, it's just one of those things, you know, now, you know, 20 years on, uh, you know, I look at dad's relationship with Sass and see how happy they are and how mum's like really successful and actually how that kind of separation, although how it was very difficult for her, has led her to to really shine and, and kind of have her own kind of sense of, I'm not just Rick's wife and, you know, she's just done her own thing and, and, and flown in her interiors and stuff. So it's not, it's, I'm pragmatic about it. Uh, it was tough, obviously, it was tough. I mean, it was millions of people go through it every year all around the world um so, and we're very fortunate we're extremely blessed in terms of being successful Our families have done really well so i don't want to sound too dismissive but about like people who might think it really affected me badly but i was old enough to deal with it i think if it happened when i was 15 slightly different i mean dad's his father when he he committed suicide he was manic depressive when he was 18 and i think that affected him quite a lot compared to to what happened to me so i don't know it's just <laughs> i see how happy dad is now and i just think you know what it's so much time's ha- passed since then and you know i've now mar- <laughs> i'm about to marry an australian myself and i can understand the allure of the australian um, personality so well i think from an outside perspective i think probably most of us thought well the business will never survive and of course the opposite has happened and, that, and I think that's down to the fact that mum and dad, despite the fact they've been very good at kind of compartmentalizing the, the business side. And I actually think that's down to the fact that the business is, is our kind of our legacy or our kind of, you know, that the, the three sons that they've got, that, that that will become part of our future. So I think mum was always able, despite the fact that she was extremely upset in the early days and still is, 
you're having to deal with with the, with that as every day but they understand that the business is so important to them and actually they have a business relationship which i think a lot not a lot of people could believe that you could have after such a huge schism in a in a kind of personal scenario but the business keeps them going you know and like you as you know the, the hospitality industry you know even though they're in their 70s now and they've got amazing people managing the business who are just you know who are light years ahead of where they would have been when they were managing it on a day-to-day basis they um they're just able to 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 be happy with their business and it's their it's their legacy to us it's their the fact that we all now work in the business, all three brothers are now back in the business. Um, Ed, my oldest, was away for a long time. He came back a couple of years ago. Charlie, my youngest brother, he's been in the wine trade in in London for the past decade, has now come back to, to us. So they've all kind of come back, and I think that makes them feel very happy. And yeah, it, it's sort of, it's weird. And, and I've had lots of business people, lots of people who do business kind of, you know, like, training or whatever saying it's a very yeah, unusual situation coaching yeah co- yeah business life coach it's a very unusual situation and it is unusual but it works and i think that's testament to everyone's want for it to be successful yeah well i think look you know for me it's testament to your resilience you know as a family and i think it's it's really unusual i mean i've you know my businesses and partnerships i've had two partnership dissolutions in my you know career and they're terribly painful and difficult and you know what starts out you know is all you know dreams and ideas and you know the thrills and spills of business you know often ends up in such a different place and for so many businesses so to see a business like yours um you know succeed and continue to like you say a legacy that's incredible it really is yeah, so how do you that, feel think- the the baton's been passed almost you know you're, <laughs> you're holding this thing do you feel the pressure of of pushing forward with it I just well, not until you know, I just asked I, you. No, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think you no. Know, if I could do, if I could do half of what Dad's done in his career, I'd be, I'd be happy. You know, and again, like I'm not just waxing lyrical about him and Mum, but at the end of the day, the our industry is quite, it's quite a simple industry in terms of you know. You, I think Russell Norman from Polpo said it best, and he said, you know, you you take people in off the street, you sit them down. The word restaurant means to restore, to restore someone's health. You sit them down, you feed them, you give them some drink. You, they feel good. You know, you give them a smile, f- front of house or on point. Everyone's just, you know, and you forget yourself for that moment. It's like escapism. And, you have, and then he adds a caveat. You take their money off them. <laughs> you, take, you get, they stand up and they walk oh, out spoiled and, they feel, and they feel restored. And I think there's something about, there's something about that. And, and a few of the things that like, I always stick with me, people always say, and I, obviously they would say the same thing to you what's it like oh you're a chef it must be so hard to cook for you it's like it's not just anything i don't care like like chefs if you said to me i can cook the best fish pie ever then i'd be like okay here we go your seasonings all over the place you know like you get all ramsy on it but actually if some anyone give me any food any point doesn't matter if it's um, if i'm in you know the solomon islands or if i'm in in new york city i'm just like so happy i'm just happy because i know how hard it is to cook food i know how much passion goes into it and i think that that is the legacy that my that, that i will take on it's just cooking food for people it's not a low skilled task and where where i think the great cultures, great food cultures, Thai culture or French or Italian culture, where the, the, that, the knowledge of your grandparents and your, you know, your parents gets passed on in that kind of simplicity and all that sort of stuff. That's just all me. That's what I want to do. I just want to be that vector. And also to talk about people who don't have a voice. I think that's really important when you're a chef that people listen to, even if they think you're boring and you talk too much um but <laughs> but it's to, to talk about your suppliers talk about the people that do the hard work talk about the guys and girls are out fishing and farming and, and doing all that stuff because without them you're nothing they're your they're your building blocks and you're building a, a, a very simple structure but you're saying look without these guys i'm nothing and i think that's where hospitality is so good is because we all sit around, and Anthony Bourdain said it the best, is you all sit around and as hospitality people in a bar and you can see other hospitality people. 
and you sit down and you know we've had some drinks before after the good food show and you just want to associate with people in your industry because we know what it's like it's like we know what you've been through as so many industries do i'm sure that the that doctors and nurses on the front line in the nhs feel the same way and that we're not in any way in that level of just importance but chefs in front of house and cocktail people and baristas you sit around that's who you want to talk to i just i just gravitate towards them because we've all had that one customer we've all had that one supply we've all had that one story that can just resonate through time so i just want to keep telling that story yeah and can i ask about um lucy and the kids i mean so do you have this dream of in all honesty, of setting up a little business somewhere, or is it, or is yeah, this COVID talk? No, 100%. I mean, <laughs> if there's a sugar daddy, if there's a sugar daddy out there with a couple of billion that wants to uh, bankroll a, a fish restaurant anywhere in Australia, I'm there in a heartbeat. Um, we, I mean, Lucy is, um, you know, she's from Perth. She, she's come over here. I, we've had our family over, two beautiful kids here. Um, but I've always seen myself living in Australia. I mean, I've been going there since '84. Um, I've always seen myself as just i just love i just love australians and, and i hate i mean i'm a, you know when the ashes I, I hate to go on about cricket but i'm a huge cricket fan my two kids are half australian and it's like i'm now thinking about them and i'm thinking about you know as you know you know being originally from england you you see things in australia when you just go oh the sports facilities the lifestyle the the people you know the, the banter i mean i listen to more australians talk about most things on podcasts than I do English people because I just find them hilarious. I find the whole country amazing. So, yeah, we're 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 definitely going to look at, at moving at some point. Where the restaurants in the weeds at the moment with what's happened and and we need to get it back on a firm footing. But I can see myself, yeah, coming over and doing something. Especially uh, Melbourne is the place Lucy wants to go. She's she loves Melbourne. I've not really spent enough time in Melbourne. So we're going to come down to Melbourne. Yeah, she's deluded. I mean, we love Melbourne, but then we're all, you know, even though the weather is beautiful today, <laughs> but we all secretly think we'd love to live in the Margaret River or, well, I certainly do. I'd love to live everywhere. To be honest, you know, coming to this country, you know, I came out here in 91, you know, I'm an old man now, but I remember just every corner that I drove around, you know, on my little driving expeditions, whether I was in the Clare Valley or, you know, up where, you know, and Molly Mook, for example, and I'd come around little bends and just go, oh, you know, like I was just, you know, didn't have to try too hard of that, you know, when in Rome kind of exercise of, you <laughs> know, it, telling everybody how good it was. Because I think people just got fed up. They go, okay, where did you go this it's, weekend? It's very, or, you know, where did you go on your day off? It's very funny. There's a show, there's a show in England, you may have heard of it, called... Um, uh, called escape down under or wanted down under and it's about a show where you get a couple with a family or whatever and they go right um we really want to move to australia like one of them has probably traveled there in the sort of on their backpacking tours and they've now got to mid 30s and they all they go to somewhere like claremont or to sydney or whoever and they go um and they go right here you could earn four times as much money and they do the whole thing they go shopping and they learn <laughs> they go and speak to somebody who they work in the same sort of industry and they end up going well we could triple our money and and have half as many hours and we could live this lifestyle like that and lucy watches the show and she said would it ever work the other way and i said i don't think it would i like i don't think you'd get like aussies going i could become a tradie in cornwall and earn a third what i'm earning right now and work three times as many hours and it would be raining the whole time so um i <laughs> uh, see i think i think you're wrong i think it's just a my daughter for example dreams of because she has been to the UK and France, and she's been lucky to travel everywhere. But um, she loves the idea of living in England. In England, maybe it's because she's got English parents, but little cottages, you know. So she watches. She watch uh, endlessly as Escape to the Country and all of these. And she goes, "Dad, look at that little cottage." And I go, "Yeah, but the doors are really low, and you bang your head on the on the, you know, mind you, I don't. I'm too short. I just." <laughs> I just walk straight under them. But, yeah, she dreams of those kind of lay them, you know, the lay them plaster and all this kind of, and little gardens. And I go, yeah, but it rains a lot or whatever. And she goes, I don't care. Yeah. So I think it's just your perspective. I, I, and, of course, it's full of castles <laughs> and history and, you know, different things. Falling, so yeah. it's, grass is always That's greener. That's true, actually. I never thought like that. I mean, Lucy's the same. She 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 studied in London and actually a lot of my friends. I mean, London is a beautiful, I mean, amazing city. I mean, it's one of the best cities in the world. So, but, yeah, no, I'm, I, we're definitely thinking of, um, of at least – putting our putting dipping our toe in, in 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 coming over in the next couple of years i think it's just a matter of expanding the stein empire and continuing continuing the path you know and if that means that you've got a little restaurant that you can escape to 
somewhere remote like Esperance or something like that, then do that. But then you can go back to London, go and eat at Claire's restaurant and go, I'm an international jet-setting restaurant. <laughs> it's very James Bond. You know what? I think we should wrap it up. I know occasionally the, the listener, whether they picked it up or not, you're having – it's late at night there. You're having a little cider, as you should. Of, I've, I've sunk a couple of vessels, yeah. <laughs> Well done, and we couldn't be more happy that you you took a little time out to have a chat with us. Maybe we we'll get you back on at some stage. You know, when when things are you know, I don't know when there's a queue down the street in one of the restaurants, and you go, "Geez, I wish I was sitting back in my little cubby having a cider." Thanks, mate. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So now for my tips and tricks, and it has to be about seafood, doesn't it? And most people I know that cook fish are reluctant fish cookers. They'll just chuck it in the oven and hope for the best, and that's fine. But if you want crisp, delicious skin and roasted fish, you know when you see the chef basting it with a little butter? This is how you do it. Great nonstick pan, a little bit of oil, medium heat, dry the fish, and then skin side down into the pan. And you want to hold the fish down, just keeping the skin in contact with the pan for about the first 30 seconds. If you can't use your hand, use something else like a pair of tongs. And then over a moderate heat, keep that fish sizzling until you can start to see that skin go gold and brown around the edges. You can have a little peek, but the secret is to cook the fish for most of its time on the skin, which protects that lovely, soft, delicate flesh. So let's say you're gonna cook the fish for eight minutes, cook it for six on the skin, flip it over, almost turn the heat off, let it draw through, get your plate out, pop the fish on, and what you'll get is delicious, golden, crisp skin with that beautiful, tender flesh just cooked underneath. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.